It's great to be here with you all today. Uh, there's so many great talks at this symposium, and I can definitely say that if I wasn't giving a talk right now, it would be a tough pick as to which one I would go for the 245 session. So I would love to see the Expel talk or uh, Daryl Falk's talk. There's lots of great talks, and really appreciate the invitation also to contribute to the symposium from Randy Isaac, who contacted us uh, earlier this year and reached out um, asking for abstracts. And we really appreciated uh, being invited to participate. So I'm giving a talk titled A Taxonomy of Information and the Design Inference. Uh, I'm presenting on behalf of Stephen Meyer and William Dembski and myself, so I hope that they agree with my talk. Uh, they're not here today. I am. Uh, hopefully they, they like what I'm going to present and their names. Um, the uh, initial abstract was going to cover many different types of information. And there's definitely enough material there to make a whole week-long course. So we're not going to get through every type of information. I'll give you a quick outline of what we're going to cover. We're going to talk about what is information. We're going to look briefly at syntactic information and then Shannon information. We'll look at semantic information. What is that and how is it defined? And then finally at complex and specified information and how we make a design inference. So what is information, first of all? Well, many folks have tried to define information, and it's been difficult to define. There are many different definitions of information out there. Uh, it's basically, at its heart, a measure of randomness versus non-randomness. Um, and I think the fundamental intuition behind information is that we're reducing possibilities. There's a reduction in possibilities. The more that you rule out, the more information you've conveyed. Um, now, nature can produce information, but also intelligent agents can. And to put it another way, the reduction in uncertainty could occur through an intelligent agent or through a physical occurrence. And so, for example, if we look up and there's blue sky, well, that reduces uncertainty about whether it's raining. Nature has reduced our uncertainty. Um, now, if we look on a baseball field and we see 18 people playing baseball outdoors, that's also probably reducing uncertainty about whether it's raining. So there's different ways of reducing uncertainty. So what is this idea of syntactic information? Well, information always, uh, it often, though not always, involves a sequence of symbols. Um, syntactic information uses a set of characters or symbols or some other set of items to convey a message. Um, so if you can read this, you're reading syntactic information and driving too closely. So there you go, syntactic information. Um, what is Shannon information? Well, Shannon information pertains to a fixed character set. It's a, type of, it's a type of syntactic information where you have a fixed character set and characters are in a sequence. And once you have that fixed character set, you can start asking about the probabilities of each character arising. And of course, you might say that the probability of E is a certain probability, the probability of X is a certain probability, and you can start measuring the probability of that sequence arising. Um, Shannon information is measured in bits, where one bit is equal to the negative uh, log base two of the probability of the sequence. Uh, and the purpose that Shannon, the reason Shannon originally came up with this was, of course, to, to measure the fidelity of transmission of information in the telephone context at that time. He was at Bell Labs. So we're trying to measure the fidelity of transmission of information to determine if we're, if we're transmitting it accurately. So let's take a, an example of a short uh, string, a short sequence. The, string, the binary string 00110 contains five bits. In each, uh, uh, each location in the string, you can have a zero or a one, so the probability is 0.5, and of course that minus log base two is one bit per uh, uh, location on the string, so that equals five bits. Now, five bits tells you nothing about the content or meaning of the string. It doesn't tell you anything about what's going on within that string, it just tells you how much information is there. So Shannon information is concerned only with reducing our uncertainty. It's not concerned with content or the pattern or the specific, the specific meaning of that string or the information. 
So let's compare these two 22-character strings. We have uh, the first one is a random string I got from uh, random.org, which is a great website if you need random uh, numbers or random strings. And then another string, which is this is a non-random string. Well, under Shannon's definition of information, they each have 103 bits. So both the random string and the non-random string have an equal amount of Shannon information. So I would say Shannon information does not really help you distinguish between functional and non-functional information. It's not useful for helping us to detect design or really even measure, in, in, in not in all cases, but in many cases, it's not helpful for measuring functional biological information because, again, a random string and a non-random string can have the same amount of Shannon information. There's another uh, related form of information called Kolmogorov complexity, which measures the compressibility or randomness of a string or some sequence where uh, compressibility is basically proportional to the inverse of randomness. So if it's compressible, it's not random. If it's random, it's not compressible. Um, it operates in a computer context. So you could look at uh, Kolmogorov complexity as uh, being how many commands in a computer program would be required to specify a particular sequence. And I'll give you an example. Let's consider three strings of an equal length. The first one is the number one repeated 57 times. Well, here you could actually uh, explain that very easily. One simple command, repeat one 57 times. Uh, probably very low Kolmogorov complexity. Um, uh, then we have this next string, which is also 57 characters. Kolmogorov information is a poor measure of biological complexity. Well, this you might be able to compress it somewhat. Maybe we could remove the vowels, or if we knew the, uh, the rules of English syntax, there's probably some way we could compress this string somewhat, but it's still going to need a lot of information in order to, uh, in order for us to understand. A lot of uh, commands are going to be required for us to understand and specify this string. And then, of course, we have a random string, also of 57 characters, and this is not compressible at all. Really, the only way for you to uh, specify uh, this string would be to spell it out uh, every single character. And so that's going to have very high Kolmogorov complexity, and uh, that's a problem because uh, basically in this, in this context, a random string actually has higher Kolmogorov complexity than a, a non-random string. So it's not really a very good measure, again, of functional complexity um, in that sense. So what about semantic information? What is semantic information? Well, the definition, I would, from what I understand, I would say it's information that has meaning of some kind. Actually, Randy Isaac, I think, gave a pretty good definition of semantic information in his paper in PSCF from December of last year. He said, semantic information indicates the significance of a message, whether or not an intelligent agent was involved. I think that's a good, a good definition of semantic information. But of course, where does the meaning come from? Well, in, in semantic information, we're assigning it. We're determining that there's meaning. Um, and so I would say that significance of a message, although it is a form of information, no question about it, um, it's not really what Shannon had in mind, uh, and it's not really what's at stake with complex and specified information. Shannon, of course, was not looking at the, the, import, the significance or the meaning of the message. And complex and specified information, which is CSI, uh, is identifying some specified subset or a pattern within a reference class of possibilities. Um, it, too, is not necessarily looking at the meaning or the function. It doesn't have to be a, a message, so to speak. Um, so there's a difference between semantic information and complex and specified information. 
Um, so Dr. Isaac, I, I actually want to say I agree with these quotes from his paper very much. I think these are right on. I might, we might disagree on some of the implications of these quotes, but I think that you know, this quote here, in abstract symbolism, the symbol has a meaning assigned to it which does not derive from, from its physical properties. That's, that's true. That's right. Um, so I would argue that semantic information could occur by a natural cause or by intelligence. Um, and uh, this is a form of semantic information. A stop sign tells uh, car drivers to stop. Um, however, in nature, uh, we also have a stop symbol. TGA is a codon in the genetic code. It tells translation to stop when you're, when you're uh, uh, expressing a protein. So there is semantic information there, I would argue. And I think that that's something for us to think about. Um, coding in and of itself does not necessitate intelligence unless the coding represents abstract symbolic meaning. So where are we finding abstract symbolic meaning in, in nature? Well, and again, uh, Dr. Isaac, and I, I agree with these statements, um, abstract sim symbolism is a hallmark of intelligence, especially as manifest in language and communication techniques. So I guess the question I would ask is, um, I agree with those statements, but you know, TGA, stop. Why should the genetic code be excluded from abstract symbolism that is semantic information? I think it's a question for us uh, that's worth thinking about, something maybe we can talk about. So what is complex and specified information? I gave a little bit of discussion about it. Let's get into it in some more detail here. Um, and also, how do we make the design inference? Well, in complex and specified information, or CSI for short, complexity is related to unlikelihood. So uh, we can measure probabilities, we can measure likelihood of events, and that can be a measure of the complexity of a sequence. Um, now, the specification is a match to an independent pattern. And so uh, let's go through a couple exercises to understand exactly what this means. Well, information is complex if it's unlikely. So this string here, this is a very unlikely sequence of zeros and ones in binary code. Um, the odds of that or string arising, this binary code sequence, is very, very low. Now, is that alone enough to infer design? No, absolutely not. Um, unlikely events happen all the time. I could deal each of you out a five-card hand of poker, and the odds of each of you getting the particular hand that you get would be very, very low. And uh, certainly, uh, you would probably not infer design just because you got a very unlikely hand. But let's say that I deal you out a five-card hand of poker and you get a royal flush. Okay, fine, no big deal. That does happen sometimes. But then I deal, deal you out another hand. You get another royal flush, and this happens over and over and over and over again a hundred times. Well, each of those were very unlikely events, but now something different has happened. They've matched a specific pattern, and it might be appropriate for you to draw a design inference that the deck is not just being randomly shuffled. It's actually stacked, to, and it's been intentionally ordered to produce a specific outcome. So it turns out that um, this sequence of uh, zeros and ones, this binary sequence, is not just uh, a random uh, sequence. It's actually specified in that it is binary for the ASCII code that produces this sentence by our good friend Richard Dawkins, who says, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Of course, Dawkins doesn't agree with intelligent design. I don't think anybody, that's news to anyone. Uh, but I, you know, what intelligent design theorists are asking, well, if something can have the appearance of having been designed, perhaps we can actually detect design in nature. And why, why can't we do that? Um, so I would argue that we can find high CSI and detect design without necessarily finding semantic information. That's going to be my argument here. And our friend Gork is going to help us to do this. So uh, Gork is from outer space. He's never been to Earth. And he comes to, the, uh, to North America, actually. And he's touring mountains of the United States. And he comes across this mountain. And of course, he finds that this mountain, it has a very unlikely shape. The odds of this uh, 
Is this working? The odds of this ridge being right here and this a gully being here and this gully here, the odds of every rock on that mountain having the exact shape that it does is very, very low. But of course, it's an unlikely shape, but there's no particular pattern that Gork is going to recognize or even be able to detect in one way or another here. And he says, this looks like a normally weathered mountain. He's seen this on many other planets that he's visited. Uh, there's no reason to make a design inference here. Yes, it's unlikely, but it's not matching any pattern. Then, of course, Gork comes to this mountain, and he says, well, this is not only complex, but it, I can see this matches a pattern. There's something different here about this mountain. Um, and a specific pattern plus complexity is how we detect design. And then he says, Glock, Tinu, Zorak, Nanu, Nanu, which when translated means, but I have no idea what this pattern means. He has no idea who these presidents are. He may not even know what human beings are. Maybe he comes, you know, 3,000 years in the future when we've all wiped ourselves out or something. Um, Gork doesn't know the meaning of this mountain or what, what, what exactly is going on here, but he can detect design, and he can see that there's a pattern here that is very unlikely. And, of course, this is what he also found. Um, so you may have seen this before. Um, so there's an interesting um, exhibit at the Smithsonian Institution. I don't know if this is still there. Somebody sent me this uh, picture a number of years ago, and it's a really, really bad picture, so I apologize. But I've typed out the last sentence here. Um, it's about an exhibit of, uh, of, of some structures and some um, artifacts that they have where the exact purpose of the artifact was not known. So the Smithsonian Institution, they have these artifacts. They don't know exactly what they do, but they can tell that they were designed. It says the exact purpose and meaning of the designs and representations is unknown. Well, isn't that interesting? We can tech design even when we don't necessarily know the precise meaning or function of the design. We can recognize that there's a pattern, there's an unlikely pattern that has been matched in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. They're also looking for an unlikely pattern. And they might find that Gork is saying 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, 17, the series of prime numbers. Um, that may have some very specific meaning to Gork. And in fact, uh, I think I know what that meaning would be. But uh, the bottom line is we might have no idea what that meaning is. But yet we can tell that it is a very particular uh, signal that is a non-natural signal that matches a pattern which uh, is used by SETI to infer design and to detect that an intelligent agent was at work. So I think this is significant. We can detect design even when we don't necessarily know the full meaning of a sequence. Um, in the context of the laws and constants of the universe, which I know biological design is very um, controversial, but perhaps uh, cosmic design, at least in this uh, venue, is not quite as controversial. The idea that the physical laws and constants of the universe are finely tuned to allow for advanced forms of life. Well, um, they match a very narrow range of what is required for life. Um, this is high CSI, but this is not semantic information. I mean, what is, what is the message here? What we see is that there's a very unlikely event, the configuration of the physical laws and constants, that matches a very particular pattern, namely that which is required for life. So it's hard for me to understand how this is semantic information, but I think that it definitely qualifies as high CSI, and many of us would agree this is a good example of, of design in nature. Um, and of course, we don't invoke Gork here because Gork lives within the universe and he cannot uh, organize its laws and constants. So this is a pointing to a need for a designer outside of the universe. Um, what about within biology, however? Well, it turns out that there were rotary engines in biology for who knows how many millions, billions of years before we discovered the rotary engine. This is from a rotary engine enthusiast website. Uh, this page came down a few years ago, so I had to go to the, uh, the uh, web archive to uh, find this. 
But uh, there's a ATP synthase uh, rotary engine represented here as well as a bacterial flagellum rotary engine. And we, these existed as rotary engines before we even knew what a rotary engine wa uh, was, before we had designed a rotary engine. That's why this diagram says nature, can't see my, my pointer here, nature always does it first. So that's very interesting. Um, and of course the rotary engine uh, of the bacterial flagellum has many parts and components which uh, we now recognize are part of human design engines. As a matter of fact, we designed our own rotary engines and then we discovered them in, in biology and we found that they use many of the same components. So there's no abstract message here, but there's certainly a highly complex pattern and it existed before we observed it and it matches many aspects of known design systems. Now obviously the question, if I read through some of the uh, articles in that December 2011 issue of PSCF, very good articles by Dr. Isaac, Dr. Freeland and others, um, obviously the question is can a uh, process like random mutation natural selection build a multi-part machine like this. Um, I think there are some good arguments that uh, it's not a mechanism that can build these kinds of machines and perhaps we can talk about that. But at the very least, you know, there's a, there's a, there's complex and specified information here which I think is worthy of us considering a design inference. So just to make a conclusion, um, what helps us to detect design? Well, uh, detectable design, I would say, is within specified and complex information. That's the general category where we detect design. I would say that semantic information is within complex and specified information. It's a great way to detect design, and I actually agree with much of Dr. Isaac's uh, talk, and I think that there's a lot, or in his uh, paper, I think there's a lot in it that uh, is very thought-provoking and, and is accurate. Now, we might disagree on this one, though, that uh, the genetic code is a form of semantic information that is worthy of a design inference, and I think that uh, this is something that we should think very carefully about, but I would like to propose that the genetic code is uh, basically uses semantic information, and it's a very strong example of design in nature. So, conclusion. Um, information can be understood and defined in different ways. Some uh, of those ways are useful for detecting design and or measuring biological information, uh, whereas others are not. Semantic information is useful for detecting design. However, semantic information as a class falls within complex and specified information, which is a more general mode of design detection. And so, uh, again, I would propose that the genetic code is a form of semantic information, and is it a multi-mutation feature? We talked about, we heard about those with Walter Bradley's talk this morning, um, and I think this is a, a question that's very important. I know that Ann Gager is going to be addressing this in more detail in her talk later this afternoon, but I think that multi-mutation features are really going to come down to be a very key question in this debate. Um, in Dr. Freeland, Freeland's paper, he talked about the possibility of taking a word um, like evolution and evolving it into another word like creation, moving one, changing one uh, letter at a time or perhaps multiple letters through insertions and deletions. And that you can do this for any two words. And I agree with that, but Darwinian evolution obviously requires that you provide some kind of a functional advantage that can be selected at every step. Um, otherwise, the only reason that a change is going to get fixed is if it's a neutral mutation. And neutral mutations certainly do occur. They certainly can be fixed into populations, but now you're just playing a game of pure chance. And in that context, you know, there may be limits on the number of neutral mutations that can be fixed uh, into a, uh, a system uh, given the pro known probabilistic resources available over the history of the Earth. And Ann Gager is going to talk about this some more, so I don't want to spoil that. So thank you very much. And uh, uh, again, all semantic information is CSI, but not all CSI is semantic information. Thank you very much. So you've been very much on time, so there's plenty of time for questions, and we can still return pretty much this.
appreciate it. Anything from the floor. But Calvin is a silence now. After lunch. Oh, sorry. No, no. I apologize, I was a little bit late for your talk, so I may have missed something at the beginning, but um, I'm interested in this notion of semantic uh, information, uh, but it, it's, uh, I'm curious about uh, how one judges whether the genome would be semantic information. Um, usually, semantic information requires some kind of an interpreter who acts with agency that's not uh, constrained by the interpret, not constrained in the interpretation by um, say that physical laws. There's mental operation going on in, in most, in at least human interpretation, and of course we impart that into computers to do others as well. So my question is about um, the sequence of A, C, T's, and G's, and so forth. Are they being interpreted in an agential sort of way, or are there physical laws that are governing what occurs when that when the, that sequence is being read? Well, I would argue, no, that's a very good question. And I would argue that there's no physical law that dictates that TGA has to uh, encode a stop codon. It's actually totally arbitrary. Any other codon would be just as good. And there are, you know, there are redundant codons. There's other st stop codons. But the genetic code itself is not constrained that says some physical law is dictating, oh, this codon has to specify this amino acid or this codon has to specify stop or start. Um, it's basically, it's, it's arbitrary. It's true form of information that there is no physical or chemical law that's saying that a particular uh, series of three nucleotides has to signify something. And there certainly is an interpreter. I mean, there's, there's the ribosome, which is reading this information, uh, much like, you know, within uh, the context of signal communication, a computer might receive a signal and then it's going to interpret it and give you some output. In the same way, a ribosome will interpret the information from an mRNA molecule, interpret it and give you the output of some, uh, some protein. So in the same way, you know, whether the signal is being sent by, you know, your buddy who's sending you an email on the other side of the world, or it's being sent from the nucleus, the DNA, I think the process, I don't see any uh, substantive difference between the process of interpreting a message that's being sent through mRNA to a translator, the, pro, the ribosome, which then produces an output, a protein. I think that there's, there's interpretation of a message there, and the message, uh, you know, or at least the, the correspondence between symbol and meaning um, is not dictated by physical law. Yes, I'm going to uh, try and make the case again that uh, you'd be better served by making probability arguments than information arguments. Um, so the, the specification part, I'm with you. I, I've, I've argued before that you know we look for design by looking for the combination of improbable plus something suspicious in, in how it's specified. Um, I'm a little worried about the words complexity and uh, information. Um, and let me go back to my earlier example of hetero, uh, heterogeneous ion channels. Here's a case where um, you can't doubt that this thing is uh, irreducibly complex. It requires a lot of what you would call complex specified information to evolve or, or to, to make. And yet we have a very clear understanding of how it could have evolved from a homogeneous, um, homogeneous ion channel. And there's lots of other examples you can come up with, uh, mammalian, um, middle ear, and so forth. So it seems to me there's a lot of examples where you would say, Yes, that is, there's a lot of complex specified information there by your definition. And yes, we see how it could have evolved from a simpler system. So it seems 
probability argument because your complex specified information argument is, gets a lot of false positives. Well, I, I appreciate the comment. This is Dr. Harzman, is that right? I'm sorry, I actually missed your talk. I went to a different talk, so I, please forgive me, and I didn't get to hear your argument about the evolvability of that ion channel. So I, I, I can't speak to that. I can say that, you know, to a certain extent, um, many of these claims that structures, that they can evolve, these may be open to debate. Um, I think that there may be some fossil evidence that shows, uh, that shows that mammals and reptiles might have some ancestral relationship, but the notion that you could go from a uh, jaw, uh, the reptilian jaw to a mammalian ear, um, I'm not convinced that that's totally been, I, I'm, I haven't sold on that, that there's not uh, perhaps some non-functional intermediate stages that you'd have to go through. There may be places where muscles would have to become detached or you'd have to, there's some, there may be some issues there. So I, I would say that, you know, these are issues that we need to investigate and debate. Um, I think that there, there definitely is the ability of random mutation and natural selection to produce low levels of complex and specified information. And what I mean is, if one mutation can give you some kind of an advantage, I think everybody agrees that that kind of a, a, a change can get fixed into a population. I think every ID proponent definitely agrees with that. Um, the question is, though, and you can, you can do this, you know, probabilistically at the, at the uh, population genetics level, you know, if there are multiple mutations that are required before you get any advantage, you quickly run out of probabilistic resources. You need very large gen uh, populations and very uh, many, gener uh, many generations of very large population sizes in order to get the probabilistic resources to have two particular mutations arising in a population uh, to allow that multi-mutation feature to come to exist. So when we're talking about high levels of complex and specified information, there we are going to, I think we're going to see that intelligent design is the only game in town. So I guess I would argue that if you could build the mammalian ear from a reptilian jawbone one mutation at a time, then each step would be low CSI, and I have no problem with that. But if you run into places where you need multiple mutations, maybe coordinated or simultaneous changes to occur to uh, get you some advantage or avoid perhaps some non-functional or deleterious intermediate, then you're going to be looking at high CSI jumps. And the, at, the, at those individual jump levels, you know, that's where I think we, we do see that there, there is a limit to what Darwinian evolution can do. Um, just, just a quick follow-up on that. Uh, these arguments about needing multiple mutations and multiple genes to all come together at once always make certain assumptions about a stable environment, non-changing um, a lack of other functions, only one function for each thing. So I think that's where the interesting question will arise as to whether these things are truly improbable under or not. Because if there really is only one function for G and stable selection pressure, then I would agree that requiring five mutations and five different genes would be vastly probable. But that's the real question. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and I, I agree, and I think that this is a tractable question. You know, what are, what do the fitness landscapes look like? Um, uh, I guess, do, do I have a couple minutes left with Q&A? I can give a couple slides. Um, if we're sticking to our five minutes, because you started five Okay, okay. I'll give you just a couple slides here on, many of you may be familiar with this research, um, investigating, you know, how, how common are functional amino acid folds or functional protein folds within amino acid sequence space. So uh, there have been mutational sensitivity uh, tests that have been done on proteins to ask how likely will you find a functional protein fold within amino acid sequence space. So if you look at a protein that's, say, 150 amino acids, there are uh, 150 amino acids long, there are 20 amino acids, so uh, there's 150 to the 20th possible combinations. Of course, 
Uh, Darwinian evolution is not going to explore all those. So just how complex and specified must a protein be? Can you get from one se functional sequence to another in remaining you know, functional along each small step? Well, uh, Doug Axe, who's at uh, Discovery Institute where I work, he's asked this question, how common or rare are functional sequences among all the possible combinations of amino acids? Um, does Darwinian evolution encounter the uh, combinatorial inflation problem, the problem that you have to get multiple mutations present before you get any advantage when generating new proteins? Are, are proteins multi-mutation features? So he's done uh, mutational sensitivity tests on beta-lactamase enzyme and found that the odds of getting a stable functional protein fold is 1 in 10 to the 74th sequences. So only 1 in every 10 to the 74th sequence, according to his you know, research would yield a stable functional protein fold. And so this, you can see this diagram as being like a fitness landscape, where basically you get very, very low enzyme activity, very low fitness, until you get a sudden spike. Now, a blind search process like Darwinian evolution is not going to be able to find a functional protein fold, a very minimal requirement for, you know, biological uh, systems. You have to have a functional, uh, stable protein fold. Um, it's not going to be able to go from one stable fold to another very easily if folds are that rare. So um, that's very high CSI. So that's, that's what I would argue. And there's a probabilistic problem here because if only uh, ten, 1 in 10 to the 74th sequences yields a functional um, uh, protein fold and there have only been about 10 to the 40th organisms in the history of life, clearly there's not enough uh, probabilistic resources to search through amino acid space to produce you know, functional protein folds through a blind search process like Darwinian evolution. Thank you. Thank you.